0: Hello and welcome to GOSH Pods Practicing Pediatrics, a series of educational podcasts brought to you by clinicians at Great Ormond Street Hospital, covering a variety of interesting topics in pediatric medicine. I'm Emma, the Digital Education Fellow and your host for today's podcast. Welcome back to this two-part episode on blood and marrow transplantation where I'm joined by Dr. Kushnima moulin one of the specialty doctors on the blood and marrow transplant team at Great Ormond Street. So in part one last week, we discussed everything up to the transplant itself. So we talked a bit about the indications for a blood and marrow transplant and the process for finding a suitable donor. And in this second episode, we're going to focus a bit more on the process itself and the period following the, the transplant procedure to look at some of the complications that can occur and how these might be prevented. So thank you so much for joining me again, Kushnuma. Thanks, Emma. And going
1: back to my analogy of cooking, I hope it's not been too much to digest, but we've just started the process of
0: cooking here. Fantastic. So I was hoping firstly that you could just give an overview of the transplant process as a whole. And just kind of simplify it a little bit for me. I've, you know, it it sounds like it's quite a complex process and all the different stages. So I was just hoping you could talk me through what the different steps are. Yeah.
1: So to, you know, talk about the process of how you take a child through a blood and marrow transplant, you could divide it into say four to five phases. And just to be clear, I think what I'm talking about here is going to be only anogenic stem cell transplant where R is not equal to D. In the autologous, it's kind of similar, but obviously the complications and the way you do it might be slightly different. And that's not the spoke of this podcast. So coming back to the different phases, just to understand as a timeline, of course, we understood why we need to transplant or why not transplant a child. Once it's decided in an MDT setting that this child needs to come to transplant, you start doing a donor search. The donor is available. You know that the product or the graft, whichever you've selected, be it's the umbilical cord, the peripheral blood or the bone marrow is either going to be collected or collected and stored somewhere. And the child gets admitted into the blood and marrow transplant world. Now, when the child comes in, uh, going back to the gardening, you have to make space. You have to clean up the ground such that the stem cells or the seeds will come and take root. So to do that, you need to do something called a conditioning therapy or the preparative phase, for instance, in that child. And then once that preparative regimen is over, then you put the seeds in, which by definition, we call it day zero in the transplant world. And on day zero, you put the cells back in whatever fashion, which I will come to in a bit. Then obviously, it's a waiting game in some sense. Because you just wait for, you keep giving water, you keep giving the right fertilizers and anti-weed medication, if you may like, to make sure that the graft is strong and holds in. And then you start seeing the first sprout, which is generally the neutrophils. And then slowly, slowly, you will see flowers and fruits, which is the platelets and the RBCs and all the other things coming up. And then when you're sure that it is robustly planted, the patient can be discharged. Then you follow them up in the post-transplant setting.
0: Breaking down the process and thinking about the steps in a little bit more detail, so the conditioning phase is a bit before the transplant. So you said it's the bit where you're trying to make space for the new cells to grow. So can you tell me a little bit more about that phase? How do we achieve that kind of clearing of the ground and how long does that take? Yeah, so I think traditionally
1: the principles around blood and marrow transplant, and this is again when it started off, which was in the leukemia setting. The idea was to eradicate the tumor. So you try and go into the bone marrow and completely empty out or sieve out all the residual malignant cells. In the same time, you're also trying to make space for the cells. And thirdly, you try and make sure that the recipient or the R's immunity is dropped down so much so that they don't reject what's coming in because it might not be from the same family. And even if it's from the same family, that is a minor difference. And you know, it just shouldn't by default get kicked out. So Keeping these principles in mind, even in the benign setting when you do it, you're basically trying to make space. The best way to do that or to dissolve the bone marrow of the recipient is to give high doses of chemo or high doses of radiotherapy and sometimes a humanized protein such that the immunity of that person is completely washed out. Now, just on the timeline, if you look at day zero as a day of infusion, Preceding that, it's obviously on the minus. So you start conditioning on day minus 10, day minus eight, give the chemo and radiotherapy. So if I have to put it simplistically, it's generally a combination of two or three chemotherapy drugs or a combination of one or two chemotherapy plus radiotherapy and probably the humanized protein.
0: Right. Okay. And just to kind of understand, I've got this correctly, how thorough you are with the cleaning out depends a little bit on why you're doing the transplant. So if it's for a malignant indication, then you're going to be much more thorough about making sure that all the cells are gone than for one of the more benign indications.
1: Yes, that's right. Depending on the indication and also the health of the child, right? When the child comes in, if for whatever reason they're extremely sick or they have a lot of infections on board or their gut is falling apart for some reason, you're not going to go full throttle because you know they're not going to be able to tolerate it. So it, yes, you have a recipe book, you will go back to page number whatever and see the recipe but you will also paint it as per the clinical indication, the clinical performance status of the child coming in and what you're trying to achieve at the end of it.
0: Right, okay, so tailoring it to the child. So you've prepared the child with the conditioning phase and then you're going to give them this actual physical transplant, the stem cell infusion itself. How is this physically achieved and how long does it take?
1: Yeah. So going back to trying to differentiate between a solid organ transplant and a blood and marrow transplant, for a solid organ transplant, the day of the surgery is obviously the most important day. In the blood and marrow transplant, day zero or the day of stem cell infusion is the most anticlimax day ever because most parents are like really looking forward to, okay, what's going to happen on day zero? But it's almost like, you know, a nurse comes in, puts up a bag, which looks like a blood transfusion and gets done in 20 to 30 minutes. And you're like, what? The transplant's over? And yes, the transplant's over. So that's what happens in the blood and marrow transplant setting. Day zero mm-hmm. is not very mindful most of the time. It's about a 20 minutes or a maximum one hour kind of infusion. And it goes through the central line or a peripheral line the child has. And it's done and dusting, but obviously there's a lot of preparation before and then a lot of care to be taken after that, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, definitely. So you say it's all a bit anticlimactic, which I can understand compared to a surgery. But are there any immediate complications that can occur at this stage that you should be watching out for?
1: Yeah, if you're talking about on an average or a median, what happens on day zero in most allogenic stem cell transplant settings, that's the, the child gets the infusion. If the product or the graft had been stored before, there would be cryoprotectant in that graft which you've thawed and you've either washed or you're just giving it as it is. So that chemical itself sometimes can give complications. There is a upper limit of how much of that chemical can go into the body in one day. And hence, sometimes if the child is really small and you can't give the infusion in one day, you probably divide it into sometimes two, three days. But more often than not, you do it in one day, which is day zero. And yes, that chemical can have side effects. So you sometimes hydrate the child a lot. So you give extra fluids for the next 24 hours. Because of this chemical, sometimes the urine color might change. So keep a watch on that. And thirdly, because it's a blood product in some sense, you generally pre-medicate with, say, pyritone and paracetamol and just make sure that they don't
0: get an allergic or an acute reaction. But most often than not, it doesn't happen. Right. Okay. But the complications would be similar to the complications of a blood transfusion.
1: Yes, but it's very unlikely because like, you know, in a blood transfusion, the major complication or the major error that can happen is it's coming to another person. Like it's not meant to be given to that patient, but it comes by error to that patient. In the blood and marrow transplant, fortunately, not many such errors happen because it goes through so many you know, levels of checks. And from the registry to matching, then we do a consummatory typing. So it's very unlikely that you're giving it to somebody else. Having said that, it sometimes could be a completely different blood group. So yes, it could be like a blood group mismatch reaction. But to avoid that, then you do specific things in the lab before you have released the product so that the complication doesn't happen like a mismatched blood transfusion.
0: So in many ways, it's better than a blood transfusion because you know that it's perfect for that recipient. Yes, exactly. It sounds like and you've kind of talked a little bit about this already. I was just hoping you could give a really simple overview of how the cells might be processed before they're given to the patient. Because you've said that sometimes they might be washed or stored mm. with cryoprecipitant. So how might they be processed?
1: So you will uh, probably touch a little bit upon the autologous setting. So if the recipient is the donor and you've collected the cells beforehand because you're going to give a lot of chemo and radiotherapy to the child, then those cells are up front. Mostly it's peripheral blood that's collected. Very rarely if peripheral blood mobilization of the stem cells is not good enough. Sometimes I need to go into the bone marrow and collect the cells. However you've collected it, basically you separate the stem cells, which is the CD34 cells in the lab, and you just preserve those. So obviously in the autologous setting, almost always it's going to be cryopreserved. In the allogenic setting, Pre-COVID, we actually went for fresh cells most of the times. But during the pandemic, we had to continue doing transplants, obviously. And at that point, if the donor got COVID, say, at the time that they had to donate, then the recipient is already prepared. The recipient has no immunity, has no bone marrow left. And then the donor pulls out for medical reasons. And then, you know, you'd be in a soul. So at that point, I think the boom of cryopreserving grafts in the allogenic setting started. And now just for logistics reasons, most transplant centers actually go ahead and cryopreserve it because it just makes life so simple. In case you have to delay the transplant because the child becomes unwell or, you know, there is a more urgent transplant coming up, et cetera, et cetera, you could just keep that product and then use it whenever the child is ready. So majority of the times when you're giving cryopreserve, like I said, you will wash it or make sure that it is at a limit of maximum tolerability or maximum dosage, which is generally one gram per kilo, be very, very thorough. Of that chemical going into the body. If it is not washed and the level is okay, then you just keep the product as it is. It's intuitive to understand that when you wash something, you might lose cells. So if the product that you've already stored has a very small or a very little stem cell dose, then you're going to defer doing a washing because you want everything to go in. Okay, but actually, most of
0: the time, the th- processing is it's being done for logistical reasons rather than actual medical reasons?
1: In the autologous setting, it is a medical reason because you can't take cells fresh when there is nothing left. In the allogenic setting, yes, I think now, yeah, you may be right that it's more logistics. But there are certain conditions or indications of transplants that even during COVID, we made sure that we gave fresh cells. So just for an example, severe aplastic anemia, when you transplant children with that condition, we know that cryopreserved products didn't pick up as well or didn't go in as well. And hence that is one condition through the pandemic and even now that we make sure that we give fresh cells. So I'm sure there'll be more data available now that we've come, you know, three years out of the pandemic and maybe maybe we'll switch back to fresh, but at the moment this is where we are.
0: Right. Okay. That's really fascinating how that might the the kind of data we're going to get just from the changes in practice that were kind of enforced on us by COVID. That's true. So after the transplant, patients enter the kind of neutropenic phase. Is that right? Where everything's very suppressed. Can you talk a bit more about this phase and what's going on? Because it's quite a critical phase, I understand.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. So actually from the word go, when the child comes in and is admitted for a transplant, they get admitted in a HEPA filter room, and they are always in a negative pressure room such that nothing from outside can come inside, like when I mean germs and viruses. So we tend to keep them in a bubble from the time of transplant because we assume that the first dose of chemotherapy, which you give much before day zero, you will start you know, dropping their immunity to almost nothing. Sometimes, even before day zero, the children are extremely neutropenic and pancytopenic. By the time they get the stem cells back, Sometimes they take a few days more, so the stem cells go in, but their neutrophils and everything else are still okay, and then they start dropping. So yes, the critical phase, I would say, starts any time when bone marrow is starting to get depleted, and all complications related to pancytopenia can then kick in. So what are the common complications at this stage? So, I mean, obviously this is not an exhaustive list, so to start with, the earliest ones that we see from the minute you start giving them chemotherapy or radiotherapy, obviously nausea and vomiting is a lot. So they go on to at least two or three anti-sickness medications and a lot of supportive care up front. With that, again, because chemo and radiotherapy will affect the highly replicating cells m- much more often, the hair follicles and the gut lining will be affected. So they start losing their hair and they start getting something called mucositis which is the breakdown of the mucosal barriers is starting from the mouth till the anus, but most commonly it's upper and then goes to lower gut. At this time, during the mucositis phase, obviously they can't feed, their weight starts dropping. So more often than not, majority of children undergoing allergenic stem cell transplant would get total parental nutrition and would not be able to enterally feed, but we try and feed them entry as far as possible. Having said about the gut, then coming to, you know, no neutrophils, no platelets, no hemoglobin, non neutrophils means there is no first line defense, so they are at high risk of bacterial, especially gram negative sepsis, fungal infections, and because there are no lymphocytes, they are at a very high risk of viral infections. So whatever we can think of or whatever we know commonly affect this stage, we give a lot of prophylaxis. So we give antibacterial prophylaxis, we give antifungal prophylaxis to all children undergoing allogenic transplant. We keep checking the levels of the antifungals as well to make sure that they are, you know, supremely protected. And from a viral standpoint, they get antivirals. A fever during this time is probably an emergency, like in any other child going through chemotherapy, because they have absolutely no first-line defense, nor a protective immunity. So the minute they spike a fever, they get gut cultures done, you know, wherever the source is, probably they have a URI, they have a cough, they have a you know urinary symptom, all those cultures are sent off, and there is always at least at this center, we have two first-line antibiotics going into them within the first one hour of the fever. So federal neutropenia is quite common. And then slowly, as their neutropenic phase gets longer, they're at more and more risk of, you know, having bleeding because their platelets are low, their mucosal barriers are broken down. Sometimes they have bleeding from their urinary tract. Sometimes they might bleed from the lower gut. So it quite a scary phase in some sense, because, you know, just saying this gives me goosebumps that, you know, we're putting a child through so much. But the way I satisfy myself at the end of the day when I go home is like, we break them before we make them. So, you know, you're doing this, they work through all this with a lot of supportive care. And then when the neutrophils start engrafting, then that's when you see their gut getting better and they're feeling better. The other complications in the neutrophilic phase is something called sinusoidal obstruction syndrome or PRESS, which is posterior reversible and syndrome, or something called transplant-associated thrombotic microangiopathy, or TATMA. So, I know, sorry, a lot of abbreviations and a lot of terms involved here. But essentially, this is under the umbrella of endothelial dysfunction. So, imagine there is a child who you've put through a lot of chemotherapy or a lot of preparative regimen. Then they are getting cells from somebody else. There's a lot of chemical being produced in their body in terms of cytokines trying to kind of accept that graft. And in that work process, the endothelium in the entire child's body is quite dysfunctional. So as for any other severe disease, if I may call it, endothelial dysfunction can cause a lot of issues and it can affect practically any organ of the body. But if I stick to the couple of terms that I mentioned, sinusoidal obstruction syndrome is generally an endothelial problem affecting the liver. So you see their weight suddenly going up. They're becoming more yellow or exic. And they might have hepatic dysfunction. They can go into encephalopathy. They can go into hepatovenal syndrome. Then coming to posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome, it predominantly affects the brain in the posterior half, and hence the name. And thirdly, thrombotic microangiopathy. This probably occurs a little later, but can affect at any time. And again, an endothelial dysfunction, which generally affects the kidneys. And hence you get a hemolytic kind of picture, but it's not driven by autoantibodies. And it tends to come with hypertension, could be seizures, could be a lot of tummy pains. And it's a whole syndrome in itself. So just to put it out there that there are a lot of complications which are endothelial dysfunction related and can occur from the time you put the graft in to the time that the endothelial kind of calms down, which can take a couple of months, sometimes even years after transplant.
0: Right, okay. So yeah, it sounds like really quite an intense and horrible period in terms of the side effects. And so I guess at this point, it's just kind of supportive care is really all important as well as just having that vigilance. So any kind of early signs of infection can be picked up and treated upon really early because they've got the potential to become really quite unwell. Exactly. Yes. So,
1: yeah, I mean, it might sound very dramatic, but we've had children who've had spike of fever, say at seven o'clock and by eight, half eight, they are down in PICU. So yes, they have absolutely no reserves because they might have been through a lot of K1 radiotherapy anyways for the disease beforehand, then going through this. So they potentially are really fragile children and any blood and marrow transplant unit, I would assume is like a high dependency unit and it shouldn't be taken lightly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you said that the neutrophils are often the first to kind of engraft and show a sign of recovery. And I know it may vary from case to case, but what's the standard length of time between day zero when they get that transplant and the time when you start to see that first engraftment of the neutrophils?
1: Yeah. So I think here is when the main difference between what graft source you have accepted for your transplant becomes important. Because this is like saying, if I put one seed in, I'll probably get only one plant. But if I put many seeds in, then I might get a lot. And some of them might drop off because they don't take root. So in an umbilical cord, because it's coming from such a small human, the stem cell dose is obviously very little. And if you infuse that into a much bigger recipient, bigger when I say age and weight wise, then obviously it's not in proportion to how much you want to engraft, if that makes sense. So... From a timeline perspective, if you do an umbilical cord transplant, traditionally, we always feel that they are the last to recover compared to somebody getting bone marrow because yes, they have very good stem cells in that, but they take time because the stem cells from the bone marrow have to go into the bone marrow of the person and then come out. And peripheral blood is the quickest to engraft most of the times only because the dose that of stem cells that you can get from the recipient is much higher. Is that making sense? Ed, that makes complete sense. Yeah. So if I have to summarize in one line, the time taken to neutrical engraftment is proportional to the amount of stem cells you've given. And hence will depend on the graft. For instance, in a peripheral blood, by say end of week one, two, you will start seeing some neutrophils come up. In a bone marrow, say by week two, three, so by day 14, 21, you will see some flicker. And in an umbilical cord, it can go up to day 28 and sometimes even longer. But this is just the neutrophil compartment and like, you know, blood has a lot of other components and they take much longer to then grow and flourish.
0: Okay. And so presumably that development of cells and their growth takes us to the next phase. So the engraftment phase, where as you've put it so nicely before, it's everything starting to kind of take root and grow. Is everything better at this point? Is it like the calm after the storm or are there still things that you worry about at this point?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, there are lots of storms that we see in transplant to be honest. But the engraftment phase, as such, so by definition, just to be able to collect data retrospectively, most collaborative transplant groups, say for instance, European BMT Society, has defined it as the first day of three consecutive days when neutrophils are more than 0.5. It's called the day of neutrophil engraftment. Around that time, as you can understand, suddenly there's sprouting. So it's spring season, suddenly. And there might be a storm coming in because there is a lot of cytokine release in the body at that time. And typically, you might see something called an engraftment syndrome, which could, you know, manifest as, say, a fever, a skin rash, liver dysfunction, hemodynamic changes in the terms of tachycardia, hypotension. It masquerades like a febrile neutropenia episode, but it happens around the time when you're seeing some flicker of neutrophils coming in. And it's defined as the engraftment syndrome. And in bloods, you will see, obviously, neutrophils coming up, but there will be CRP going up and sometimes some liver issues. Umbilical cord transplants have the most dramatic engraftment syndromes. But this is counterintuitive because I said engraftment happens later in umbilical cord. Obviously, there's a lot to this, so I won't go into a lot of detail. But compared to bone marrow and peripheral blood, umbilical cord engraftment syndromes are driven by the T cells in the graft, the T lymphocytes. Was in the bone marrow and the peripheral blood. It's more neutrophil driven. Obviously, there's a lot of science behind
0: this, and I won't go into detail. Yeah, it sounds quite complex. So, what happens next in the patient's recovery? How long does it take them from you know those first initial seedlings growing as the cells start to engraft and multiply to having a full complement of cells? Hmm.
1: So, once we see neutrophil engraftment, normally what we see is platelet engraftment after, and then maybe red blood cells. And I say that only because, you know, once you give a blood transfusion to any child, not necessarily going through a transplant, but any child gets a blood transfusion, those cells tend to kick around for about two to three months. So, the effect of red cell engraftment going in is. Probably not seen as much, but you know that's why call it happens later, and it's never taken as a benchmark of whether your transplant had been a success. Neutrophil engraftment occurs say week two, three, and then slowly by the end of first month, second month, you start seeing a robust platelet count. But normally you see good platelet engraftment as well by month one and two. Which when I say good, meaning they don't need platelet support and they're not bleeding. This is from just the predominant neutrophil, platelets, and RBC compartments. When you talk about the immunity. Because, like I said, we kind of washed out their immunity from the word go. For the immunity to come back and the lymphocytes to grow and proliferate, it might take months, sometimes years. So the earliest we see T-cell recovery is in a certain type of umbilical cord transplant, which happens very early. But in the bone marrow and peripheral blood, I'd suspect about six months or so.
0: So you talked earlier about some of the complications that can occur due to endothelial dysfunction and that they could still persist even months down the line. Are there any other complications that it's important to be aware of? I know you mentioned in the first episode about something called graft-versus-host disease. Could you tell me a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, sure. So graft-versus-host disease could be put in the same umbrella of endothelial dysfunction, but the whole syndrome of GVHD, as we call it, has a lot more feeding into it and not just endothelial dysfunction. But I think the first hit comes from the preparative regimen and all that the child has been through before, that kind of shakes the balance. And then you're getting the cells from somebody else, which suddenly is recognizing the recipient's body is completely different and will start fighting. And in that fight, the residual recipient immune cells, which are there, especially in the skin, in the liver, and the gut, start getting active as well. So there is a more robust fight. And in that fighting, You can see, you know, a lot of diarrhea, a lot of skin rash, a lot of liver changes. In a simplistic fashion, that's what happens when GVHD occurs.
0: Okay, so it's basically the graft cells kind of attacking and setting up an immune response against the host that they've been implanted into. Is there a treatment for GVHD? Because you obviously can't just take the cells out again.
1: Oh yeah. Before I go into the treatment of GVHD, I think we should understand that if I do an anagenic transplant in any child and I do not give prophylactic medicines to prevent GVHD, the risk of GVHD is 100%, even if it is coming from a sibling or a twin, for instance, because it's still, like I said in the first episode, the minor histocompatibility changes we're not looking for and they will still exist. And hence, there will be almost 100% chance of GVHD if I don't do something to prevent it upfront. Now, knowing this, that there is something in transplant which is 100%, I will try and prevent it. So we give something called anti-GVHD medications right from the preparative regimen, sometimes starting at day 5 sometimes starting, you know, closer to the day of the infusion of the graft or sometimes a little later. But wherever we put it in the protocol, they get one or two medications which will try and prevent GVHD in the longer term. Even after doing that, and there's lots of literature around that of which are the best combinations of medicines you can use to prevent this. So we do, for instance, cyclosporin and mycopenol or cyclosporin and methotrexate, for instance, as a combination of anti gdhd prevention. Even after that, there will be at least a 50-60% chance that there will be some signs and symptoms of GDHD in the allergenic setting. So you've given medicines, 60% of children get GVHD. And the best drug to treat it is steroids and higher doses of steroids, because most of this is driven by the T cells, either the residual recipient T cells somewhere in the organs or the T cells coming in from the grafted proliferating in the recipient's body. And the best T lymphocytic agent that is known to man is steroids. So, giving steroids to about 60% of children going through GDHD, almost 40 to 50% will respond beautifully. And we'll never see GVHD again. But there is a subset of those who will be steroid refractory. And that's the subset of children which, you know, the disease is horrible and it can linger on for weeks, months, years and really affects their quality of life. And that's the one bit in transplant which we are really trying to demystify to make sure that GVHD is a minimum, especially in conditions where we don't require any GVHD.
0: So you have mentioned a couple of times now that there might actually be situations when you want GVHD to occur. Is that correct? So though it sounds horrendous,
1: we as morbid transplant physicians sometimes want this to occur in a child. And maybe that is the entire indication of doing the transplant. So one group of children who really need this is acute myeloid leukemias, where it's not just trying to empty the bone marrow of all the residual cells but also trying to give some immune cells from a normal person so that any leukemia cells floating around will be killed. And in the process of killing those tumor cells or leukemia cells, the T cells are not that smart that they will not kill other organs of the body. And hence, while there is a graft-versus leukemia effect, there is also a graft-versus post effect. And that's one subset of children where we are okay to have some GVHD. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, so sometimes actually the effects can be wanted because they help you clear the disease in the child. Exactly.
1: And in those that you don't want it, you will keep the anti-GVHD medications for a little bit longer so that they don't get GVHD. But in those you want, you will pull it off much earlier.
0: And I understand it might vary, but in general, how long does it take a child to completely recover from their transplant and be off all medication?
1: So these anti-GVHD medications also act on your T-cells or your lymphocyte compartment. So the longer you stay on it, the later your immune recovery. The lesser you stay on it, immune recovery is faster. And hence, in a child where you pulled off immune suppression very early, sometimes by month six, they have their central line pulled out. They are going back to school. They're absolutely fine. But there are others had bad GVHD. What you needed to continue their cyclosporin, for instance, for their disease till about nine months or so. And then their recovery will probably a little bit more protracted than the others. So, a uh, ballpark figure is six months to nine months, but they mostly do well from that point on. But if there is intercurrent major infections, if there's intercurrent major GBHV, then the timeline shifts.
0: Finally, I just wanted to ask what is the future of blood and marrow transplantation? And what do you see happening over the next 10 years in this field? What are the big advances that need to happen?
1: Right. So before I jump into what next, I'll just take this moment to kind of rejoice the successes that have happened in the last, not 10, but say 10, 20 years. Just quoting an example, E. Donald Thomas got the Nobel Prize in medicine for bone marrow transplant discovery in the 1990s, but he started his work in 1940s. And Somewhere midway, somebody collected a cohort of 100 people who had bone marrow transplants for leukemia and only 13, one three survived. So you can imagine there was a 77% mortality, either because the disease came back or related to the transplants. But from there to shifting focus now, at least in our center, I can proudly boast that our survival rate is close to 60 to 90%. So I'm just taking this moment to understand that it is an evolving field. And of course... We've come a long way
0: yeah huge progress
1: exactly exactly and going forward I think the main focus is going to be how to reduce toxicity because as you've understood it's not a simple ball game. a lot of variables have to align to get there but reducing toxicity and reducing GDHD will be the primal focus I think going forward in transplant and when I say toxicity like I mentioned radiotherapy in a lot of conditioning regimens Now we have a lot of data to say those kids who have had a lot of radiotherapy as a child then go on to become, you know, having growth hormone deficiencies, learning disabilities. And that is something we really want to drop. And we've achieved that in some sense with the advent of immunotherapy for leukemias, especially ALL. So I think a certain section of those children who are most commonly transplanted say 10 years back, now we go through something much less toxic if the disease allows And hence, transplant might go out of the window in some sense for those children. And the other thing that I see really coming up is ways to reduce the endothelial dysfunction and hence all the complications by reducing the preparative regimen in some sense. So right now, the preparative regimen is trying to direct and clean the bone marrow, but at the same time, it's affecting every other organ system like any other chemotherapy. I think increasingly, we'll come to a point where we'll be able to target the cells that we want to eliminate in the bone marrow so that the graft goes in. And that medicine or immunotherapy will not affect all the other organs in the body.
0: Right. Okay. So just a slightly less heavy-handed approach to the conditioning phase.
1: Less heavy-handed and very specific. Right now, it's very sensitive and specific, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that does make complete sense. What are the key things that you would like listeners to remember from across these two podcasts?
1: Hmm. So I'm probably going to make this sound very non-scientific. But the main thing is, and I think you picked it up rightly, that it's not bone marrow transplant anymore. It's blood and marrow transplants. And it's the same thing as hematopoietic stem cell transplant. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's a lot of puzzle-solving, gardening, cooking, you know, you name it. And any kind of activity that you do has to be well aligned. And probably, I think, transplant, though it is a high-dependency unit, it's a lot of complications. Most of the complications can be anticipated. So you can prevent them before you need to cure them, which is great in transplant. And that's why we are kind of on the ball, you know, okay, this is the timeline that the child is, what do you think could happen? And if that's going to happen, then take measures to prevent it. And that's the beauty of doing blood and marrow transplant. And I think I'll, I'll take this opportunity to also say that it takes a village to have a successful transplant. It's not scientific. There's a lot of art, compassion, thinking, a lot of people, multidisciplinary approach. And yeah, I mean, the one thing that I want people to take home is you can't have a standalone transplant physician or nurse practitioner doing the whole process. There are lots of people involved. And, you know, I just take this opportunity to say thank you to everybody who actually does that on a day-to-day basis for our children, you know.
0: Yeah, that's a really important thing to note, I think, that it's, as with everything, I guess, in medicine, it's never really just about one person, is it? It's about the yeah. wide team that you've got behind you. Thank you so much for a really excellent overview over these two podcasts of blood and marrow transplantation. I've learned a lot of things that I didn't know before about just how complex a procedure is, but how successful when done correctly. It's been really fascinating. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gosh Pods. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.